0: Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 1 as we continue our journey uh, through the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. When you get there, put your finger on verse 35. That's what we're going to be jumping into this evening. You know, life in a contemporary society can be quite chaotic at times. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are many days when I wake up and I feel like life is being pulled in so many different directions. I'm feeling pressure from so many different angles that that sometimes I'm not sure I can keep my head above water because so much is taking place or so many activities, so much busyness uh, surrounding my life and characterizing my life that sometimes I just don't know if I can keep up with the pace and the pressures of life. Uh, in some ways, I feel a little bit like uh, Jim Gaffigan's assessment on what it's like to have four kids. I don't know if you've heard his uh, stand-up routine, but the, the, the comedian was asked one time, or he was talking one time about what it's like to have four kids in the home. And he said, well, just imagine you're drowning, and then somebody hands you a baby. That's what it's like. You just you, you feel overwhelmed. There's just so much pressure, so much going on that you just don't know if you can keep your head above the fray. And it's not just... Uh, In the realm of parenting, where that type of pressure occurs, to be sure, we feel that pressure uh, in college when we're balancing school and play and jobs and all the things that, that we've got going on in our lives. There's so many activities occurring, and there are times as you journey through college when you feel like you're just being overwhelmed by all the demands and the pressures that are coming into your life and that are falling upon you. So you feel it not only in parenting and in collegiate life, you feel it in your social life when you uh, feel torn and spread too thin relationally. There's so many different activities and things that you can engage in. You're not sure what to prioritize at times and, and you know that something's got to give. And so eventually you have to start, start cutting weight out of your life out of fear of just being overwhelmed by the various pressures and activities and busyness that is characterizing your life. But one of the unfortunate things that we tend to do as disciples walking with Jesus through the world that is, is usually the first weight that we cut, usually the first weight that we cut is our prayer lives. That tends to be what goes first. That tends to be what is put pushed to the wayside most readily. And I find it interesting when you step into Mark chapter 1, you've been reading over the past couple of weeks as we've journeyed from verse 21 on down to verse 34 of just one day of activity in Jesus' life. And you'll see that he was being pulled in a variety of directions. There was a lot of activity, a lot of busyness surrounding Jesus' journey on this particular Sabbath day. You remember how it begins, he wakes up on the Sabbath and he goes to the synagogue to worship with his friends and not only does he go to participate in the gathering in the synagogue, he's he's the speaker, he's the teacher for the day, so he stands and he is tasked with teaching the sermon, delivering the message during that particular worship gathering and as he's doing so, he's astonishing everyone with his authority, people are hearing his words and they're captivated by the revelation of God that he's providing them and then someone stands up in the middle of the room and interrupts a man who mark tells us was marked by an unclean spirit and he starts challenging Jesus he starts pushing back on Jesus it was a stressful moment I'm not sure how I would have handled it but Jesus handled it very well and Jesus brought his kingdom to bear on that guy's life he brought redemption into his life as he delivered him from the oppression he was under in that moment And then when the service ended, Jesus went with Peter to the house and you would think Jesus would do what many of us do on a casual Sunday afternoon is just take a nap, you know, eat lunch, go to sleep, get some rest. But you know that the moment he steps into the home, more pressure is applied to Jesus, more demands are made of Jesus because when he steps into Peter's home, there's more need there. Peter's mother-in-law has fallen ill with a fever, and they bring her to Jesus, and Jesus serves them by bringing healing and relief to this woman's body. And then the sun goes down on the Sabbath, and you would think that'd be the time for Jesus to tuck it in and go to bed and get some rest, to take some time for himself. Only in that moment, when the sun came down, more needs came out, as People from all over the area brought the sick to Jesus. People who were oppressed by unclean spirits came to Peter's home and they filled the yard and they uh, sought Jesus needing his help, needing his relief, needing his kingdom. And so they came to Jesus seeking those types of things. And so Jesus' work didn't end when the sun went down. And if anything, it picked up more speed. The pace quickened for Jesus as he served the people deep into the night. So you would think that the moment Jesus did go to bed, when he finally did tuck it away and go to sleep, that he would sleep in, that he would maximize the amount of sleep he could get that evening. But what you find in verse 35 is that Jesus doesn't do that. You find, beginning of verse 35, that what goes down in Jesus' life, you see in the midst of this whirlwind of activity all these pressures that are befalling Jesus, all these demands are being made of Jesus, you would think that Jesus would have allowed his prayer life to fall to the wayside. But you see in verse 35 that he still, in the midst of all this activity, he finds a still point to pray to his father. He set aside some time, and it says in verse 35 that he rose very early in the morning. He got up early. The sun wasn't even out yet, and this dude was up. And the reason he woke up was so that he could go to a desolate place where he could pray. And so you find this moment where Jesus' busy day and all the activity, all the things that are taking place in his life, the one thing he refused to let fall to the wayside was his time with the Father, was his prayer life. And so when we think about this theme tonight and we think about how busy our lives can be and we think about the role of prayer and the priority of prayer that, that should mark our lives, I want you to know that I'm not stepping into this theme tonight uh, with the obligatory you're a Christian, you're supposed to pray kind of sermon. I'm not here tonight to wag my finger at you and say, well, aren't you a Christian? Shouldn't you pray? If you are a Christian, you should pray. How is your prayer life? Are you not praying? Well, shame on you. You need to pray more. You need to do more. You need to do this, that, or the other. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to wag my finger at you and to get you to pray more. My goal tonight is to put before us the priority of prayer in Jesus' life. And I want us to be able to see the value that comes when prayer is prioritized by us. You see Jesus prioritizing prayer in verse 35. He wakes up early in the morning while it's still dark. He goes to a desolate place and there he prays. So when you think about prayer and valuing it as a priority, the reason why we want to do so and the reason why prioritizing prayer is so important, one of the reasons is because prayer recalibrates our relationship with God. Prayer has a way of recalibrating our relationship with God. You see, one of the challenges in life, when when we find ourselves pulled in a bunch of directions, it's very easy for us to lose sight of what matters most. It's very easy for us to lose sight of the point and the purpose of our lives. And and prayer is a gift God has given to us in those moments to serve as kind of a, a recalibration, to recalibrate our relationship with God. You kind of see this going down in Jesus' life when, at point when we're told that he departed and went out to a desolate place. That word translated desolate place is the same word translated wilderness earlier in Mark chapter 1. You remember what went down in the wilderness. Earlier, John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness. He was preparing the way of the Lord, and then Jesus shows up. He goes into the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist. And we're told that after Jesus went into the water, when he comes out of the water, a voice from heaven cries out and speaks. And what does that voice say? He hears the voice of his father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So after this long day of ministry activity, this long day of productivity and busyness, we find prayer recalibrating Jesus' relationship with God as he returns to the type of place where his identity before God was affirmed. And prayer recalibrates our relationship with God as we come into our relationship and we're reminded that we relate to God as our Father, that He is our Heavenly Father. And then we're reminded that in Christ, because of Jesus, what was true of Him now becomes true of us, so that what the Father says of the Son, He says of those of us who are in the Son. So prayer recalibrates our relationship with God by reminding us that God is our heavenly father and that we are his beloved children. So we approach prayer and have that recalibration take place because this is one core truth to who we are as followers of Jesus that so easily falls to the wayside. It's one that we so easily forget. We allow the pressures of life to push this reality out from the core of our being which is why prayer should be prioritized by us because prayer helps us recalibrate. It reminds us of what, most, what is most important. It reminds us that the creator of the cosmos is our father and he sees us as his beloved children. Do you know what that means? That means that if you feel the pressure that you're going under right now, The creator of the cosmos relates to you as a father relates to his children. He's got your back. He's not going to let you sink. He's not going to let your busyness drown you. God is our father, and prayer helps recalibrate our relationship with God, reminding us that he's our heavenly father, and we are his beloved children. And because of that, this means that prayer, another reason we want to value it and prioritize it in our lives is because prayer then deepens our intimacy with God. If it is true that in prayer our relationship is recalibrated, then one of the goals of prayer is to deepen our intimacy with the Father, is to help us get to know God more deeply. Now when you read through this passage, we're not told what Jesus prayed. We're not given words that he spoke to God in this moment. We're not privy to that information. But later on in the Gospel of Mark, we are told how Jesus regularly referred to God. You come towards the end of the Gospel, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to spend time praying, to hang with the Father. And we're told that he addresses God as his Abba, as his Father. And the word Abba was a common designation that little Jewish children would use in reference to their fathers on a daily basis. Kids calling their fathers Abba or Dad. It was an affectionate designation. It was a familial designation. It was an intimate description. And this is how Jesus regularly referred to God when he prayed. He referred to God as his father And then when he teaches his disciples how to pray, one day when the disciples see Jesus spending all this time praying to the Father, they come and they ask him, will you teach us to pray? Will you teach us how to relate to the Father the way you relate to the Father? And Jesus says, okay, well, when you pray, pray this way. And what does he say? He says, when you pray, pray this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You can address God, not simply as your creator, you address God as your father. So in prayer, we have an opportunity to deepen our intimacy with God, to get to know God better. Now, you and I can't simply create intimacy. Intimacy is something that we can just create from scratch. Intimacy is something we must make room for, right? Any person in a relationship, any person. Relationship shared between two persons they can't just create intimacy they must make room for intimacy I know this as a, as a guy who's been married to my wife for a little over 10 years and I know that that intimacy just doesn't happen between us that Kim and I have to create room for intimacy we have to make room to deepen our relationship with one another so let me ask you what if the only time I spent with my wife was at parties what if the only time I hung with my wife was in groups of, It was in groups with other people? Well, if that was the only time I spent with my wife, if the only time I hung out with her was at parties, then chances are intimacy would be lacking. Chances are our closeness would take a hit. And if you think about the role of prayer in your life as a child of God, if the only time you talk to the Father is when you're gathered with other people, Chances are your intimacy with the Father is going to be lacking. If the only time you talk to the Father is at parties, at your missional community, or when you gather with other believers on a Sunday like this, if the only time you talk to the Father, you spend time with the Father, is, in, is within with groups of people, chances are intimacy is going to be lacking. So as followers of Jesus who relate to God, not simply as our creator but as our father, we have to make room for intimacy. This means that we need to pay attention to what Jesus is doing as he relates to God all throughout the gospels and we'll see him doing some things that we do want to imitate, that we do want to follow suit doing. In order to create room for intimacy, we want to set aside designated times for unhurried prayer. We want to set aside times for designated times for unhurried prayer. We need to carve time out for, to spend time praying, with, praying to the Father. Now, when you read through the Gospels, you do see a little emphasis placed on Jesus' pattern that he, he, tend, he tended to spend time with his Father in the early hours of the day. He, he tended to rise early in the morning to spend time praying to his Father. And one of the reasons why I think it's wise, not demanded or required, but one of the reasons why I think it is wise for a follower of Jesus to carve out and set aside time in the morning, first thing in the day, is because life tends to invade after that. And so if we try to spend time and carve out time at another point over the course of our days, chances are those will be easily interfered with, easily invaded And I say that as a point of wisdom. I don't say that as a requirement. I don't think it it matters what time you spend with the Father. I think all that matters is that you do spend time with the Father. It's not a certain time. It's some time. That's the goal. We want to set aside time where we're not having to rush in our communion with the Father. We want to set aside time where we're not being hurried along and and other things seems to be invading and intruding upon the time that we've designated for that purpose. But not only do we want to set aside designated times for unhurried prayer, we want to set aside time to uh, we want to set aside what might be described as a desolate space for unhindered prayer. Desolate space for unhindered prayer. What I mean by that is, if you want to spend time praying to the Father, it doesn't mean you have to go to the wilderness. You can. It doesn't mean you have to go to the desert. You can, but it doesn't mean that. A desolate space is space where we can commune with the Father in an unhindered kind of way. Commune with the Father without interruption, without distraction. And I'm not necessarily talking about a quiet place. Noise level doesn't really matter. I'm talking about a place that's free from distraction. For some people, that is a a room in the home that is reserved for their time with the Lord, that is quiet and there isn't a lot of things going on. For others, they commune best with the Father. They spend time praying to the Father while taking walks or sitting out on a park bench. Location doesn't matter as much as making sure that it is a space where we can have unhindered access to God. Our cell phones are turned off. Our email is not binging in our ears so that we know to check it or to read it or to get distracted by it. If we're going to make room for intimacy, if prayer serves that purpose, we would be wise disciples to set aside designated times for unhurried prayer and desolate spaces for unhindered prayer, places where we can engage with God in prayer and not be multitasking while we're doing so not checking other emails, not responding to text messages, just you and your father spending time together, making room for intimacy. That's one of the reasons why we want to prioritize prayers because prayer deepens our intimacy with God. In prayer, we come to God and we say, God, we want you. We want to know you. We want to be close to you. We want to commune with you. We affirm our desire for God in prayer. But that's not the only thing we do in prayer. We also, not only do we express our desire for God, but we also express our need for God. For yes, prayer recalibrates our relationship with God. He's our father, we are his children. Prayer deepens our intimacy with God. So we set aside time and space for it. But then prayer also affirms our dependence upon God. This is one of the most remarkable dynamics of Jesus' prayer life. The fact that prayer affirms dependence upon God, and yet this is precisely what Jesus does. He prays to the Father, and it stands the reason that every time he approached the Father in prayer, he was affirming his dependence upon the Father. And so every time you and I read about Jesus praying, we're getting a clearer picture of what it means for Jesus to be human and what it means for Jesus to be humble. We see a picture of Jesus' humanity and his humility when he approaches the Father in prayer. A guy by the name of Ben Witherington points this out about Jesus' humanity and how it relates to his prayer life. He, He points out in that statement you read a few moments ago, he said it is a clear indicator of his true humanness that Jesus feels a need to withdraw and speak with his Father in heaven to gain perspective and direction and perhaps also reassurance. Prayer is the posture of a human as he approaches his God. Jesus prayed because he needed to do so, for he was truly human. And since Jesus was truly human, he was dependent upon the Father. I don't know if you've ever thought about that dynamic. Just think about what it means for Jesus to live a dependent life. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 19, when he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what I see the Father doing, saying, I am utterly dependent upon the Father's activity. He lived an utterly dependent life. In fact, you and I can say that Jesus never sought independence. Jesus never sought independence. He never acted autonomously. He never did his own thing. And this is what set Jesus apart from our forefather, Adam. If you think about what went down at the fall, you read the story of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, when humanity fell, when we sinned against God, we're told in that story that Adam and Eve were tempted with the desire to be like God. So you ask the question, well, be like God in what sense? Well, to be like God, I believe in an independent or a self-governing or a self-determining or an autonomous sense. The seeds of the fall were sown into humanity's desire to be independent, to do their own thing. The seeds of the fall were sown in humanity's refusal to live dependent lives. And then when you step into the story of the gospel and you see the new Adam, Jesus Christ, living his life, he's doing everything that Adam failed to do in the garden. You find the one who never seeks his independence. He never acts autonomously. He never seeks to do his own thing or build a kingdom other than his father. This is precisely who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And this is precisely why you and I worship Jesus. We love Jesus because in sin, you and I act autonomously. We call our own shots. We seek our own kingdom. But in redemption, Jesus Jesus sought our redemption through his dependence. We are rescued because Jesus was perfectly obedient. He submitted to the Father's will in every moment of every day. We are redeemed because Jesus lived a dependent life. We are redeemed because Jesus did nothing he did not see his father already doing. So we praise Jesus. And when we see Jesus praying, we're kind of cued into this dynamic that he prayed as a way of affirming. I'm dependent upon you, Father. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then in prayer, you and I follow suit. We come to the Father and we affirm our dependency We say, look, life can't fire well when I'm trying to do things on my own. So I'm coming to you, Father, for guidance. I'm coming to you, Father, for assistance. I'm coming to you, Father, for help. And so we affirm our dependence in prayer. One of the ways that you and I practically live our lives as if God doesn't exist is when we're prayerless. Our our desire and our drive towards self-sufficiency arises most clearly when prayer is not prioritized when we do not prioritize prayer and regularly affirm our dependence upon God, what's happening is in that moment is we open the door for a world of of misfortune, a world of, of unfortunate activity. We begin to live our lives like cosmic ingrates who do not recognize that everything that exists in the universe exists because God creates it. And everything you and I enjoy in life, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the friends we have, all of that comes to us from God. We are dependent upon God for everything in our lives. And prayer helps us assume this posture of dependence where we're recognizing God's provision, we're recognizing his goodness, and we're thanking him for it. We're not stepping out from underneath his authority, seeking to live autonomous, self-sufficient lives. We're pressing into our dependency through prayer. So you see this at work in Jesus' life. It gives us a clear picture of his humanity, but also shows us a clear picture of his humility. You see the humility of Jesus in this moment where he's in such high demand, but he does not allow the His. His being in high demand to squeeze prayer out of his life, so he still comes to the Lord and he prays. Now, if anyone, you would think, if anyone was too busy not to pray, or if anyone could come up for an excuse uh, for not stepping into a communion with the Father, it would have been Jesus. Surely he had the excuses. Surely he had the justifications. All this activity was surrounding him. But ultimately, what you find in Jesus is a person who is too busy not to pray. You find in Jesus a person who is too busy not to pray. Now, when I say that, understand that when I say Jesus was busy, he was not busy for the same reasons why you and I tend to to be busy in our lives today. Usually when we fill our lives up with activities and we can't say no to things or to people, Usually when we're surrounded by so much activity and the pressure of life is really squeezing us, the reason why we just keep going and going and going and going, the reason we're so active in life isn't because, or usually we are so because we're trying to fill up something that was lacking or we think is lacking in our lives. We're trying to attain more value, we're trying to attain more worth, we're trying to fulfill some ambition that we have, and so we fill up our lives because we're afraid of what life sounds like when it's quiet, and we're afraid of what life sounds like when we do step into our communion with the Father. It's not unlike this uh, article that I found in the New York Times written back in 2012. We, we, We tend to fall victim to what's called the busy trap, and the busy trap sounds like this. In this article, the writer says, if you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing, they say, busy. I'm so busy. I'm crazy busy. And it pretty obviously becomes a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. Well, that's that's a good problem to have or... Well, that's better than the opposite. And so busyness serves as a kind of hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy. Completely booked, in demand, every hour of the day. The writer says, we're busy because of our own ambition or drive or anxiety. Because we're addicted to busyness and dread what we might have to face in its absence understand that when Jesus is busy in this moment, all of this flurry of activity that is surrounding him, it is not because Jesus is trying to fill up something that he's lacking. It's not because he's in any way afraid of emptiness. The reason why he's so active is because his life is so full of love. His life was so full of love. This is why there's so much activity and productivity happening in his life. And so while I talk about how this busy trap, if we fall victim to that, that can be a problem. But understand, I'm not saying that being busy or being productive or being active is sinful in and of itself. I don't think it's wrong for us to, be, to live active and productive lives. In fact, I think if we're following Jesus and we're growing in our communion with the Father, we will become more productive and more active people. We will find that that prayer and fruitful activity are not two forces pulling us in opposite directions. We'll find that, yes, every person on the planet, every person in this room lives with an outward life and an inward life. You have outward activity. You have things you need to do. You have responsibilities and requirements. You have diapers to change. You have job responsibilities to execute, various things that you need to do. You have an outward life, but you also have an inward life of the soul and both are needed and in fact both your outward life and your inward life play off of one another and if you find yourself at any point without the energy to engage fully your outward life chances are high the reason why you are not you don't have the energy or the joy or the passion to engage your outward activities it could be because you haven't given attention to your inward life your time with the father is lacking You're not coming back to have your relationship recalibrated. You're not nurturing your intimacy with the Father so that you can live from the overflow, not trying to fill up something that you're lacking, but actually exploding with the life that God is birthing in you as his child. Coming to the Father and expressing your dependence upon him. There's so much happening, God. I can't handle everything. I need your help. And then seeing the Father come through for you as he's child, as he sustains you, as he strengthens you, and you begin living your life out of the overflow of your relationship with the Father. A guy by the name of Paul Miller wrote a great book on prayer. And in this book, he talks about this relationship between our outward life and our inward life, between the contemplated life and a productive life. And this is what he said. He says, the quest for a contemplative life can actually be self-absorbed, focused on my quiet and me. He says, if we love people and have the power to help, then we are going to be busy. Learning to pray doesn't offer a less busy life. It offers us a less busy heart so that in the midst of our outer busyness, we can develop an inner quiet because if we are less hectic on the inside, we have a greater capacity to love. And thus to be busy, which in turn drives us even more into a life of prayer. So Jesus was too busy not to pray. He understood that he could not live his life in a way that honored the Father if he wasn't a person who was constantly bending the knee and declaring his dependence and you and I would be wise to follow suit. So you find this dynamic in Jesus' life playing out in verse 35. But then look at verse 36. Because after Jesus stepped out of his time with the Father, he discovers the needs have kind of piled up. More people are looking for him. More people want things from him. And it says in verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, get this, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Now, you might want to circle or underline that that word, looking for, because it's a special word that Mark uses 10 times all throughout this gospel. He uses it 10 times, and every time he uses it, it's in a negative sense. He's pointing out the fact that when people look for Jesus, they tend to have motives that aren't worthy of Jesus. Jesus a searching for Jesus, not because they want Jesus, a searching for Jesus because they want what Jesus can do. They want physical healing. They want deliverance, but they don't necessarily want Jesus. And so you'll see all throughout this gospel, people, the crowds having much great enthusiasm for Jesus, a lot of excitement about what Jesus can do. And When they catch wind of the types of things Jesus does do, there's enthusiasm and excitement. But one of Mark's warnings to us is that we must not confuse enthusiasm with faith. We must not confuse enthusiasm with faith. People can get real excited about the things of Jesus. We can show a lot of enthusiasm when enthusiasm when new church plants start in the city. We can have a lot of enthusiasm. when We hear of things happening in Jesus' name around the world, and we can get really excited about it, but we must not confuse enthusiasm with faith because what you'll do if you confuse enthusiasm with faith is when you draw near to Jesus and you discover that you can't control Jesus, all of a sudden you're going to bail on Jesus This is what the crowds discover in this moment. Everyone is looking for Jesus, but they discover when they get to Jesus that they can't control him. They can't get him to do exactly what they want, they can't get him to conform to their schedules. He's not going to meet their needs in the way that they think they should be met. And so you discover in that moment that Jesus steps out of his time of prayer with the Father and he says, I have to keep going. I can't stay in Capernaum. There are other people that need to hear the message that I've come to preach. I've come for a purpose that I need to fulfill. And all of a sudden you see that in prayer, all of a sudden prayer has this way of strengthening our resolve to do God's will. So Jesus steps out of his time with the Father and his resolve to do what God is telling him to do is strengthened. And so although there are a lot of needs there that he could meet, he doesn't meet. There's a lot of needs that he could meet in that moment. He doesn't because his Father's will is targeting something different than what the crowds realize. Understand that Jesus came, yes, to do things physically for people. But ultimately, Jesus stepped in the world to do something more than just perform miracles and to bring deliverances to people's lives. He did not just step into the world to do miraculous deeds. He stepped into the world to deliver a miraculous message. He needed to go to other places and preach is the word used there. And it's the same word echoing earlier, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus steps onto the scene in Galilee and he says that he came doing what? He came proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. In other words, Jesus did not simply enter the world to meet needs that people know know they have. Jesus stepped into the world to meet needs people do not yet realize they have. He stepped into the world to bring the message of the gospel to bear on people's lives. He stepped into the world calling people to repent. calling calling people to turn from their desire to live an independent life, calling all the shots, but to turn from that and to submit to the redemptive reign of God in Jesus. He came to bring that message, and as he delivers that message, he discloses the ultimate needs he's come to meet. And so in this moment, as Jesus steps out of his prayer, his his resolve is strengthened to fulfill God's will, and for that, you and I should be very thankful. We should be very thankful that Jesus refused to be pushed off course by the whims of others. He refused to be pushed off course. He came for a purpose, and he was gonna fulfill that purpose. I love the fact that Jesus wasn't a people pleaser. Jesus wasn't a man fearer. He was not one who was easily routed by difficult circumstances. He was not one who was easily swayed by by desires that you and I are easily swayed by. See, when you and I have a tendency to drift off course and to step out of rhythm with the kingdom of God, we do so usually because we're chasing popularity or we're chasing pleasure or we're chasing some other prize. And here Jesus has all of that, but he denies it. He doesn't respond to the popularity he has in Capernaum. He responds to the Father's calling in his life. He's come to do something specific, And he refuses to be pushed off course by the whims of others. And that is true not only of the crowds in Capernaum. This becomes true even of his disciples. And what you're going to find as you read through the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 8, even one of his disciples is going to try to interfere with God's purpose for Jesus' life. Peter's going to try to talk Jesus out from going to the cross. He's going to step in and say, no, Jesus, you do not need to go to Jerusalem. If you do, you will die. And what does Jesus say in response? He says, it is for this reason that I have come. And he dismisses Peter. He refuses to be pushed off course by the whims of people, even his disciples. This means that whatever prayer you and I bring to God, whatever request, whatever need, whatever desire, we can trust God to always do what's best. God refuses to be pushed off course by the whims of his children. So we can pray in hope, we can pray in faith, knowing that whatever prayer we pray, whatever need we have, God is going to answer that prayer in accordance with his will. He's going to do what's best. You see this echoed in Jesus' life as he refuses to be pushed off course by the whims of others. And because of that, Jesus focused on fulfilling the purpose for which he was sent. He came for a reason. And you know what that reason is. We've said it every week as we've journeyed through this first chapter. That Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to serve how? To serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. He has a mission to fulfill that will come to a climax on the cross. And because Jesus did that, you and I can come to God and pray to him as our father. Because Jesus fulfilled his mission, you and I sit in this space tonight redeemed. Because Jesus did that, you and I sit in this space tonight and we worship God, not simply as our creator, but as our heavenly father. We are his children because Jesus did what he did, we can have intimacy with the Father. Because Jesus did what he did, we can depend upon the Father and trust him with every aspect of our lives. Because Jesus did what he did, you and I are here tonight and we enjoy fellowship and communion and relationship with the God of the universe. So as we consider these dynamics of prayer tonight, I want to I draw this all to a close by asking you a question. Asking you a simple question, but I ask this not in a condemning way, but in a caring, in a caring way. Please don't hear this question as, a, as an obligatory finger wag. You need to pray more. Please hear this question in light of these appeals for why prayer should be prioritized in our lives. The way prayer serves our lives. So let me just ask you, how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life going? Is it existent? Is, it, is there a holy habit of prayer that's being carved out in your life? And if not, I would encourage you to consider how prayer can serve your relationship with the Father and then let it surface as a priority the way it was for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do that for us tonight. I pray, God, that you would give us grace to draw us into a deeper prayer life so that we would find our relationship with you recalibrated on a regular basis constantly living in light of our identity as your children i pray that we would engage in prayer as a way to find intimacy with you and to deepen our relationship with you god let us set out set aside time and space for that purpose i pray that as we assume the posture of dependence and we affirm our need for you god that you would be found and that we would trust you with all of your activity in our lives. And I pray, Father, that ultimately prayer would lead us into a deeper resolve to fulfill your will, to carry out your kingdom, to be about your business in the world that is, so that we would live productive lives of love, all to your glory and for the good of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.